Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll probably mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be on how children conceived through sperm and egg donation and surrogacy are doing. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. Here's a sample of what you will hear. So what we found when we looked at the quality of relationships between these children and their mothers and their fathers, and also we looked at their emotional and behavioral development and how well-adjusted they were generally, we found no differences between those conceived by sperm or egg donation and the children who'd been naturally conceived. This was true when they were six. It was also true when they were 12 and again at age 18. Although um, at age 18 we just collected data, it was smaller in the UK just from parents. So what that tells us, although only from one study, so it's important to be aware of that, is that the absence of a genetic relationship in itself doesn't seem to make a difference to the psychological well-being of the child. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're the National Infertility and Adoption Education Organization, providing support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption or fertility treatment to help create strong families. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The excitement is building around here. We will, we hope to be launching before the end of the month our brand new website. Stay tuned. Uh, you might want to uh, sign up for our uh, weekly newsletter. We will be announcing the launch on that. You can sign up for the week n- newsletter on any page of our website. We are a weekly radio show, and we would love to uh, have you subscribe to us so that you will automatically hear about each of our new episodes. You can do that either on iTunes or you can go to the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. This radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured, Save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk to your infertility doctor or you can go to their website at faringfertility.com slash heart. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to uh, the infertility patient community and to the adoptive family community. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader 
in the field of infertility. They have seven offices in New Jersey, and they maintain an IVF delivery weight well above the national average. Yes, and if you have... Uh, if you are, we also, I should also add, have other great sponsors uh, who are not necessarily gold sponsors, whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider or an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories on the service provider page of our website. You can search by location, services provided, cycles, number of cycles, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing, and we hope that you would think they're important as well. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's show will be on how families created via third-party reproduction are doing. Concern has been expressed in the media as well as by parents, uh, both those who are considering this option and those who have chosen this option, on how children conceived via sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, or surrogacy, uh, how those kids are doing. If Is the attachment as strong as in other families? Is the parent-child relationship as strong? And what factors might influence this? Our guest today are Dr. Susan Golenbach. She is the director for the Center for Family Research at the University of Cambridge, and that is in England. I guess that's obvious. As well as Dr. Martha Reuter. She is an associate professor of family social services at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Golenbach and Dr. Reuter, to Creating a Family. Hello. Thank you for having us. Well, you know, things. That families. The definition of family is changing. Sperm donation has been around, I guess, in one form or another for a very, very long time. The first birth via egg donation was in 1983, and traditional surrogacy was around that same time frame. Gestational surrogacy is now more common, where the embryo is created using donor egg rather than the surrogate's egg. And now embryo donation has come on the scene as becoming more common. It is actually possible now for children to have five, and I put this next word in quotes, parents, since that's a, a, a term that needs some definition. And so people are concerned about a number of things we hear uh, concern, uh, oftentimes within our community, uh, the infertility community, and, and even more often outside the infertility community. And, and it seems to be that there's concern in two general areas, although I, I'm sure that you guys would be able to uh, tell me that there's concern expressed in many different things. But the things that we hear most often are, uh, is there, is, does the lack of genetic connection from one or both parents influence the parent-child relationship? Does it influence the psychological development of the children? And the other uh, issue that we hear a lot about and actually talk a lot about here at Creating a Family is how uh, the decision to disclose to the child uh, their conception or origins, whether they were conceived via third-party reproduction, uh, how that might influence a child's development as well as the family's development. So we're roughly going to uh, talk about, uh, divide the show uh, between those two, uh, and uh, we're going to start with talking about how a non-genetic connection between the parent and the child, what the research is showing on how that impacts families and kids. Dr. Golenbach, you've done some of the most groundbreaking research. And I, let me just pause now and say I am a huge fan of your research. Uh, I'm a bit of a research geek. And so uh, this is, I'm just really, I've enjoyed reading your research, and I don't always enjoy preparing for shows, but I've just had a ball preparing for this one. So thank you for what you do. Now, uh, what does the research show as far as 
uh, families that have a genetic connection to their children uh, and those families that do not have a genetic, are, how are the families doing? Well, um, at the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge in England, we have conducted two longitudinal studies of children conceived by donor insemination, egg donation, and surrogacy. Um, and one question we're interested in is just that. So what is the impact of the lack of genetic connection to the parents? The first study... Um, which focused on children born around the mid-80s, um, donor insemination children, and then slightly later exonation children, followed the families up when the children were age six, then again at early adolescence at age 12, and then as they approached early adulthood at age 18. This first study involved four European countries, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Italy, and Spain. And we followed up more than 100 children born through donor insemination, and we compared them with more than 100 children born through IVF children who were related to both parents, and two comparison groups, so a group of adopted children who were adopted early in life, and also a group of children um, who were naturally conceived. Now, in this first study, most of the children were unaware um, that they had been conceived by donor insemination, so they were unaware that their father lacked a genetic relationship with them. Wait, let me stop you there. Some, let me stop you there. Yeah. You said that some of the kids were yeah. conceived through sperm donation and some by egg donation. Is that correct? Well, the study originally focused on sperm donation, but once egg donation became possible, we later included a group of exonation children as well, just in gotcha. the UK. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so what we found when we looked at the quality of relationships between these children and their mothers and their fathers, and also we looked at their emotional um, and behavioral development and how well adjusted they were generally, we found no differences between those conceived by sperm or egg donation and the children who'd been naturally conceived. This was true when they were six. It was also true when they were 12 and again at age 18. Although um, at age 18, we just collected data. It was smaller in the UK just from parents. So what that tells us, although only from one study, so it's important to be aware of that, is that the absence of a genetic relationship in itself doesn't seem to make a difference to the psychological well-being of the child. Um, shall I say a little bit about why people thought it might and why perhaps these children are different from adopted children? Well, I was going to ask. Yes, I would like for you to. I was. You were. You gave the results comparing them to children who were naturally conceived. Did you find anything different when you looked at children? Uh, because you also. It's, I think you just said that you compared children that were adopted. Uh, I would assume in infancy or or or, uh, or babyhood. That's right. You, so the adopted children really. No, they sort of fell between the donor insemination children and the naturally conceived. Children, so they didn't really differ. I think people have been concerned about the lack of genetic relatedness because um, there's a, a large literature on adopted children. 
showing that, in general, adopted children tend to do um, slightly have more problems psychologically than their naturally conceived counterparts. So I think that has raised some of the concern about children born through donor conception. But if you look at these studies a bit more carefully, the studies of adopted children, what we find is that it's those children who were adopted later in life who are more likely to have problems. So children adopted in infancy generally do well, um, whereas those adopted later, maybe at age four, five, six, are more likely to have problems because largely of the bad experiences they've had in their early life that has led them um, to be adopted. And we have reported on a lot of that research. Uh, and the other thing that can come into play uh, is uh, prenatal exposure issues that sometimes happen even with infant uh, adoption. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So we've got the – so basically your research has said that the non – the research on whether the children who have no genetic connection to one or both of their parents – uh, you have not seen a difference in the in the psychological uh, adjustment of those children. What about in the uh, adjustment of the parents and the parents' uh, satisfaction in parenthood or, or any other of the psychological adjustments that they make? Um, did you see any distinctions there? Yes, we did. Um, what, ha- what we found was that when the children were in their preschool years, The parents actually showed, um, and I say this in quotes, better parenting. Now, what I mean by that is they obtained higher scores on measures of the amount of interaction with their children, the level of warmth they expressed towards their children, their emotional involvement with their children, and so on. So it seemed that these parents who had often, um, you know, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, have spent many, many years trying to have children, became very involved, committed parents when these very wanted children eventually arrived. Now, by the time we went back to see the families at age 12, they were still very positive, involved parents, but they weren't um, different from the naturally conceived parents in our study. So, um, in a way, I think there was a lot of focus on the child in the preschool years, but then the parents kind of relaxed into their parenting role as the children progressed through school. And when you went back and interviewed, you only interviewed, did I understand you correctly that you did not interview children at, at the age 18, but you interviewed parents? Did, you, did I understand you correctly? Yes, that's right. I mean, the reason for that was that um, the children in our study, we had expected that many more of them would have been told about their donor conception. But by age 18 in that first study, less than 10% had been told. So we couldn't interview them for that reason. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and uh, Dr. Reuter, in, from, the, uh, from your research in this area, do you, one of the questions that we often, uh, are, are, that I personally wonder about, and I'm not sure if, uh, in fact, we did, a, we did a survey of our audience, and um, I asked the question, uh, do you feel like parents who conceived 
uh, actually, the the question was not specific to donor conception. It was specific to after uh, infertility treatment, although many of the people who answered it had conceived through donor conception. Uh, that do you feel that you are an overprotective parent? I had assumed most people would say no, that they were not, even though they might be, because they certainly are, they, 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 they come off, and I know this is not scientific, but they, they certainly come off in online support groups as, as perhaps being more overprotective. But they didn't. They, they came back saying, yes, they thought they were more overprotective, more people than not, who responded. And I, I'm curious to know whether there's been any, any research on, and I could see that it would be a little muddled because the whole movement, I think, in parenting is towards the attachment parenting now. So I think that this whole generation that is currently raising young children now, or even not so young children, um, tend to be uh, more overprotective. But has there been any research which would indicate that parents who have uh, struggled harder to conceive their children and or conceive through donor conception are different types, are a different type of parent, perhaps more overprotective? Um, yeah, that that is a really interesting question, and um, and um, before I answer it, I too want to um, say how um, honored I am to be here on this, um, you know, talking with you and um, and um, Susan. Susan, you're the you know pioneering leader leader in our um, field, and I'm um, like as I said, it's an honor to to be um, talking with you. And my expertise is um, I'm a family sociologist, and I'm. Um, uh, particularly uh, interested in and study um, communication within families and um, parenting behavior, and so, um, so yes, the the work that I've done, you know, we have spent some time, uh, you know, looking at um, uh, parenting behavior in um, families where um, both adoptive families as well as in um, uh, donor families, and um, and although parents might report. You know, like um, when you ask them on a survey, when you, when they they might report that they um, see themselves as um, like overprotective or you know working quite hard um, at their role as um, parents. Um, in observational studies, observational work that we do, we don't see any difference between um, across um, um, parents, um, whether they be adoptive parents, whether they be um, parents that conceived using donor gametes, or um, uh, parents. With, um, who have children through unassisted conception. All of them are, through, when you have an independent observer trained to see things across all families, pretty much um, um, acting the, the same way. So I, I don't doubt, uh, well, and in fact, in, um, um, on surveys we see the same thing, that we'll get different results across those um, three groups. But, um, uh, but I, think that's, I think that has, well, it's something to be looked into, and, but I think it has more to do with you know how we see ourselves as parents, rather than actually how we are um, um, our parents um, in in you know acting in our parenting role. Yeah, there's a difference between our perception. I just somehow thought that people would uh, at least see themselves as not being, but I, but I was wrong. <laughs> they do see themselves as being that way. But even though, and you're right, I wouldn't know how. That's only their their report. You are listening but to I, creating I, a family. I, Go ahead. Oh, I, I'm. I'm saying you can certainly un- understand that, though, because just as um, Susan said, and and you yourself, you know, these are families that have worked very hard um, to, um, you know, to um, build their family, and so of course the role of parenting is very important, and I'm, I'm sure they're probably um, engaging in a lot of self-examination, but but actually when it comes down to um, the actual behaviors, 
just the same as everybody else on on average. On average, yeah, which is the only thing we can talk about. Interesting. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about how donor-conceived children as well as children conceived through embryo donation and surrogacy are doing. We're talking with the uh, researchers on this, so this is a research-based show. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social network, and they would be even better if you joined us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can uh, like our page, which you, of course, can find as Creating a Family on Facebook. Uh, You can join our very large and very supportive online support group on Facebook, and the easiest way to find that is to type in the words Creating a Family in the search box. Both the page will pop up as well as the group. The group is a closed group, which means that your posts are limited to be seen only by those people within the group, uh, and you do have to request to join. Uh, And you can also connect with me individually. I'm Dawn.Davenport1. We also have a really fun Pinterest uh, uh, presence. We have, gosh, I think over 30-some-odd boards on Pinterest on everything you could be interested in, possibly, in the areas of infertility or adoption. Uh, and we also are present on uh, on Twitter. On Twitter, we're at Creating a Family, and on Pinterest, we're on Creating a Family. I want to shift now to talking about what the research shows about if children are being told about their donor conception or are uh, being carried by a surrogate, or if they are, or if the parents are not sharing this information. And then I want to branch out to talking about. Uh, is there a negative impact, uh, or even a positive impact, I should say, on on uh, by parents keeping this information from their uh, from their children? Um, so I, th- I think the first question is uh, one of the biggest concerns people have is that uh, that somehow if they tell their child that they were conceived by uh, donor sperm, or donor egg, or embryo, that it will affect the children. I think we need to start by talking about how many people are actually telling their children and if this varies by country. Dr. Gullenbach, um, you alluded to before that in your large longitudinal study you had expected that by age 18 you'd be able to interview uh, more of the children, but in fact very few of the children had actually been told, which limited your expectations of how your research was going to go, no doubt. So in general, uh, what percentage of parents are telling their children? Okay, well, because we were surprised to find so few parents were telling the children in the first study, we began a new study at the time of the millennium. So these were children born in the year 2000, which was 15 years later than the children in the original study. And what we found is that at the time the children were infants, a greater number of parents had planned or intended to tell their children about their donor conception. So 56% of the donor insemination parents and 46%, sorry, the other way around, 56% of egg donation parents, 46% of donor insemination parents said that they were planning to tell their children when the children were eight, not tell them when they were age one, but at the time the children were age one, this is what they planned to do. By the time they were age seven, and seven is a significant age because that's the age at which adoptive children develop develop a more sophisticated understanding of what it means to be adopted, 
And it's also the age by which most adoptive parents have begun to talk to their children about being adoptive. We found that only about 40-odd percent of these egg donation parents had begun to talk to their children about being donor-conceived, and only about a quarter of the donor insemination parents had done so. So it seemed that many more started off with the intention of selling, but faced with the reality, the parents didn't quite seem to manage to do it, many of them. What we, that actually follows what we see in our community. And the other thing that we see, and I'm curious to see if you saw this as well, is that when parents said that they were going to tell, many of them uh, felt that they were telling when they discussed IVF or the fact that they had to struggle a long time, had gone through the medical aspects, in other words, and they that that, that in some level counted in their mind as telling, uh, but they didn't necessarily get around to telling about uh, the use of, of donor egg or donor sperm. Have, is that uh, something that you have seen as well? That's absolutely what we found. So even with these relatively low percentages of parents who were telling or said they had, when you sort of asked in a bit more detail, we discovered that many of those had, as you say, talked about the infertility or IVF, but hadn't actually talked about the donor conception. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here. I was at, at first blush. I I think that it looks surprising that more people are telling about egg donation than sperm donation. Sperm donation, uh, perhaps because um, sperm donation has been around so much longer. But I'm wondering, sperm donation. The discussion of sperm donation gets into the discussion of sex. The whole idea of the father's role. How does the sperm get to the egg? And all that stuff, which um, for many parents, complicates and, and the, the telling, as well as uh, makes parents want to wait because they don't want to get into the biological aspects of intercourse. Does that, uh, that's of course me just speculating, do you have any idea why more uh, egg donation families are telling their children about their conception than sperm donation uh, families? I think... I mean, I think the process you mentioned is relevant to both. So, I th- you know, parents say to us it's too complicated to explain about reproduction. With adoption, it's sort of easier to talk about a baby, you know, being coming out of another woman's tummy. It's more difficult with donor conception. But I think that applies to both egg and sperm donation. I think um, our impression from the data we've collected from egg donation mothers um, is that they feel they have a biological connection to the child because they were pregnant, they gave birth to the child. And I think in a way that helps a bit, um, you know, in terms of being open and feeling that security about having a biological link. Also, because of what you said about, um, you know, fertility and sexuality being so closely tied together, Some of the mothers said to us, well, actually, we would like to be open with our children, but the fathers were less keen because they were worried about the stigma attached and that people would be confused. That's interesting. And now, go ahead, Martha. Sorry. Yeah, that that fits exactly with um, um, some of the recent research that that we've been doing with um, 
uh, well, we have three samples, um, uh, couples that are same-sex, couples that are heterosexual, and then um, um, single mothers by choice. And um, among the heterosexual couples who have have um, disclosure rates pretty similar to what you were um, talking about, um, uh, Susan, in, from your research, that um, well, that not knowing how to tell is is um, probably the main reason for um, for not um, talking with their children, but also concerns about um, their their partner's reaction or their partner um, 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 uh, feeling um, like that their role as a parent um, might be somehow diminished if if that information got out. You know, maybe the next thing we ought to talk about, and I had actually planned on doing this different, but I think we need to understand whether or not it's really important. Um, Much of our understanding of why we think it would be important for children to know comes from the world of adoption. Um, And I think there's a growing uh, body of information coming from the donor-conceived adult community uh, we did a show this summer. We had a panel of donor-conceived adults. All of them were uh, conceived via sperm donation, um, mainly because of the age. Uh, we wanted uh, people above the age of, of 18. Uh, and they, to a one, uh, all found out at a later age, had not been told as children, and um, ranging in ages, I believe, from 18 to 30 were the ages that they found out. Uh, their current ages were in their 20s to, I think, early, late 30s. Um, and 201, everyone on the panel felt very strongly that they, uh, that finding out uh, by surprise, uh, even though in some cases they were told by their parents, but finding out at a later age um, was very detrimental to them and to their relationships with their parents. Um, but that's you know that's a that's uh anecdotal uh so I'm wondering what the research is showing dr Ruder, uh have are you familiar with any of the research that is out there on the uh showing how children fare or not just and, and maybe the important that they not be children but how children and, and young adults and adults fare who were not told uh and then I guess ultimately did find out right. Right. Um, the, um, Susan, I'll let you cover the um, the research that you're um, that you're working on. I'm, I'm particularly interested in hearing if you've gotten any findings from your um, age 18 um, uh, um, panel. But um, otherwise, the, there's actually uh, pretty limited um, research because um, really no one other than Susan has been doing this this kind of longitudinal <laughs> research. That's that, exactly um, right. Yeah, how the children were doing younger, and now um, how they're doing older, and importantly, um, who have have samples where we have both disclosed and non-disclosed um, children, because because almost all the research for um, finding you know um, for knowing how children are doing, uh, donor-conceived children are doing later, is on children who have been disclosed to, and then they're. Um, you know, kind of like your panel, yeah. and they're retrospectively reporting back, and so that it's um, it's very difficult. We have samples of younger children saying that there's really no difference between um, telling children and, and not telling children. But you know, there's a really interesting um, theory that I I think um, has a lot of um, application in this situation, and it's a theory that suggests that 
um, personal information, like your biological origins, is considered property. You know, like you have this private information and you hold it. It's yours. It's it's your personal information. But uh, when children are quite young, they don't have private personal information. But at some point, developmentally, children develop into um, you know the, having the cognitive ability to recognize this is my personal private information. We don't know when that actually happens, when that when that developmental change happens, but it's probably during adolescence when children are developing their identity, you know, their personal identity. And at some point, um, you know, this idea that parents are holding your personal private information and you that's my information, you should give it to me, becomes very, very salient. And that can have, um, you know, finding out that your parents have been keeping this private, inf- this your private information from you. Um, can have um, um, de- devastating effects for some people. But I'm going to turn it over to Susan to yeah. talk about um, your longitudinal findings. Yeah, what are you finding, Dr. Gullenbach? Okay, so we've done two studies that have looked at this question. So the first one, as Martha said, is our longitudinal study, the one of children born at the millennium, as I mentioned earlier. Um, what we're finding is that in these families, about half of the children have been told and the other half haven't. So it allows us to do these comparisons. And in terms of the children's well-being, we're not finding any differences. So they're just as well adjusted whether they've been told or not told at age seven. Um, One thing that is different is the psychological well-being of the mothers we found a slight difference in that the mothers who have not disclosed have got slightly higher levels of anxiety and depression. And they're also, this seems to translate a little bit into observational measures of mother-child interaction. But having said that, this is certainly not at any kind of problematic or dysfunctional level. It's just really slight statistical differences. But it certainly suggests that Perhaps for mothers, um, you know, the toll of keeping the secret can be difficult in terms of um, their own emotional well-being. We have only followed these children up to age 10, although at age 10 we did interview them about how they felt about being donor conceived, and most of them felt completely fine about it. And I think the point here comes back to the first issue we're talking about, which was the age at which they were told because these children were all told very young. The ones who had been told their parents started talking to them before the children would even be aware of, of what they were talking about. And the age at which children are told seems to be the main factor in how they feel about being donor conceived. Um, well, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, ask you yes. about that, because there seems yes. to be two approaches to the parents who say they want to tell. What we hear from our audience is there's kind of two general approaches, and, and I may be, and I am grossly oversimplifying, but there, there tends to be the uh, the planting the seed and building upon the, the foundation approach, which is, as you just described, yes. children being told, you know, when they're being, you know, books being read to them, uh, which is what we recommend with adoptive families. You know, when you, yes. the, the reason you tell an infant is not so the infant understands, but so you as a parent get more comfortable with uh, with the telling. And then, you know, if you tell as, as it goes on, you just build with it. But then there is the counter uh, or, or a different approach, which says the, uh, the right developmental stage approach, or finding the right time, that there is a right time. Uh, has there been research which would indicate that 
one or the other of those approaches is the better approach for those who want to tell? Um, well, we have done it. I, there may be other research. and I think there was possibly a study in Australia, and my recollection is that the different approaches didn't make a difference to child well-being, but I may be wrong about that. But in our own study, we find that most of the parents use the seed planting approach rather mm -hmm. than a right time approach. So most of the children in our study had been told at a very young age. Um, there's another study I, I'd like to mention, which is a study we carried out in collaboration with the Donor Sibling Registry in the United States. And we, um, we studied 165 um, adolescent and early adult um, donor offspring. And we asked them lots of questions, and one thing we looked at was how they felt about being donor conceived, both when they found out, but also at the present time. And the most significant factor in whether or not they um, had, you know, were upset in any way about being donor conceived or not was the age at which they had been told. So there was a very clear finding that those who had been told when they were young, in the preschool years, were generally very much less concerned about being donor conceived than, as you alluded to or discussed earlier, um, those who found out later, you know, in adolescence or beyond. Yeah, I, I thought about when you were discussing your 2000 study and you were interviewing the kids at seven and, or not interviewing the children, but, you know, observing the children and probably talking with them. But we and, did interview them as well, yes. Okay, so you've got you're comparing uh, a group of seven-year-olds, about 50% which had been told, and 50% that would not. I wouldn't expect that you would see differences because the impact, if a, if I would assume, and this may be incorrect, but I would assume that if somebody never knew that, and, and they you know lived their entire life never knowing that they were donor conceived and and died not knowing, then that would have no impact on them unless, of course, it affected their parent-child relationship. And maybe, but, but, but from them personally, it wouldn't. It seems to me that the, that the impact comes if they find out uh, uh, either uh, th through their parents or through inadvertently through you know, somebody in the family or through medical testing or whatever. It seems like that's when the, the impact would happen. Am I missing something, Dr. Golombach? Well, I think you're generally right, but some donor-conceived people, when they do find out, say they had always felt there was something not quite right or they'd always suspected yeah. something. Some had you know, thought maybe they'd been adopted and even asked. So some are saying that. So it's really hard to be very definite about it. And that's a valid point. Go yeah. ahead, Dr. Ritter. Thank you. And um, And there's... There's so much more um, way, so many more ways these days for a donor-conceived um, person to find out inadvertently. I mean, everything from you know, in high school they have a, a genetics class and figure out that, huh, you know, my blood type could not be this blood type given my parents, or or they, uh, you know, have a blood test or. Um, you know, get genetic testing, whatever it is. There's so many ways these days that they, a person could inadvertently find out. And um, and I and I echo what um, uh, Susan said that so often um, you hear um, stories of 
of people, um, you know, saying, I, I knew it all along, there was something different. And, and think mm-hmm. about it, perceptual styles, personality, all kinds of things have a, a basis in personality. And so that um, uh, it's, it's not unusual for, um, for donor-conceived children to, like, you know, feel like they're just one step removed because of those differences, and, and it's unexplained all their life. And so, yeah, that's a... That's a that's a hard thing to live with, I think. Yeah, I think you're probably another, right. I just wanted to make another point that another um, couple of researchers, Paul and Berger, found um, that children felt that you know they could, parents had changed the subject who were talking about certain things. Uh-huh. So I think parents try to avoid the topic, and then yeah. children are quite sensitive and pick up that sort of thing going on as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and the uh, the complicated thing is that almost everyone that that uh, I've spoken with who has uh, conceived through donor conception has told at least one person outside of their spouse. And so if you've told one person, that one person has probably told their spouse or their significant person. And some people have you know, a number of significant people that they would feel comfortable that they wouldn't be violating a privilege if they tell. And and each of those person people that have been told also have their significant one that they would so pretty soon, particularly when you have it amongst families where the person that you've spoken to is 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 within the family, many people in the family know. So it's not just that the child is picking up nuances of of uh, with from their parents' behavior, but many of many times they're picking up nuances from their extended family members as well. Sure, and there's a there's a you know significant um, uh, body of research on on family secrets and the, the effect of, of family secrets, whether it be you know a child's um, um, a, a child's uh, um, you know genetic um, inheritance or the um, you know way they're they're conceived or you know any other kind of you can imagine secret that a family um, uh, might or that parents might hold or children might hold. And um, with some with some notable exceptions, it, it, it pretty consistently says that those kind of um, those kind of secrets, those kinds of changing the subject, those kinds of of nonverbals that make it clear that this is a toxic um, subject, um, can have um, uh, negative effects on you know, the family as a whole. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources that we have uh, at Creating a Family. We have many resources on uh, telling your children uh, about donor conception. Uh, that's really a, um, a real push that we have at, at Creating a Family, and we provide lots and lots of resources to help you. Uh, to help you do that, and you can find those on our Infertility A to Z resource pages. Um, some of our other gold sponsors, Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They have donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a North South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law and adoption. And we also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been a pioneer in offering embryo donation and adoption services to clients throughout the world through their Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program. You know, I'm, why do we think that parents 
don't tell because parents are not telling because they they want to screw around with their kids um there's they're not telling for either because they believe it is in their kids best interest or a combination of that and just other factors that are going on with within them dr golenbach and, and i sometimes realize wonder if it's not a confidence level uh have you done or are others doing research on the uh, characteristics of parents that tell versus those that don't tell? Um, not specifically that, but we have asked parents why they don't tell and why they do tell. Um, and those who don't tell, as you say, their main concern is that it might jeopardize the good relationship the child has with the non-genetic parent. And they're really worried that once they tell, that if it's problematic, it can't be reversed. So that's the main reason. But there are a number of other reasons as well. As you said before, they don't know what to tell, how to tell, when to tell. Um, and I'm sure that the resources on your website um, will be very helpful for parents because certainly in the early days, there were no such resources available. So mm, I think... Um, you know, Having, having these kinds of, um, you know, information sheets and booklets and stories to read with children um, is exceptionally helpful. So I think, um, you know, that's the main thing. But also some say to us, I really wish I had, but I've left it too late. You know, my child's now six, and it would be too devastating to tell him or her now. So that's another issue. So I think, um, you know, I think the the way in which adoptive parents are encouraged to be open with their children as early as possible translates well in this field because um, we find that parents who do start talking with their children early actually don't find it as problematic as they had feared and they actually feel quite relieved once they've done it. That doesn't quite answer your question about the characteristics of those no. who tell. Um, yes. Well, I was going to say, uh, let me let me interject something. We uh, also at Creating a Family do have, because you're exactly right. We also hear from people that, well, I've waited too late now, and now it's my child is too old to tell. And that is actually not the case. There are uh, there are ways to tell older children. Uh, it is more complicated, but it can be done. And we do have a specific resource on talking with older kids whom you've not told before. Dr. Reuter, you had actually sent me some research, and this may be putting you on the spot a little because I don't believe it was your specific research, but I found it fascinating. It was a um, a review, a meta-analysis, I believe, of of an, all the studies on um, telling uh, families that have told versus not told, and sure. they did try to analyze some of the characteristics for families that told versus didn't tell. Uh, and it's fair for you to tell me that, that that you don't have that research in front of you and, and you don't remember oh, no. every all the details. But let me throw no, it to you and see if about you, the, can you, yeah, you can talking, remember. You're talking about the Indicu um, um, review, which is, um, right. is really an excellent resource. And also it, um, it, it fits well with the research that we're doing, too. So, so no, I can, I can talk about this. The, um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, we're really talking about, you know, kind of a, kind of a combination of, of two characteristics of, of um, parents. One is, you know, their motivations for disclosing, like the reasons that they're disclosing or not disclosing. Most most parents are um, say that, that that the reason that they've disclosed is because they really want to have an open, honest 
um, relationships within their families. Um, families that um, are not disclosing, main, main reason is because they're not really sure how to go about it or because of the concerns about um, spouses. And um, uh, the um, and then there's another um, 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 aspect, and that is um, people's um, comfort with um, just talking about private things. There are some, some families in which you just don't talk about private, sensitive talk, topics, and that's, you know, that's the way the, the family works. And certainly um, issues related to um, children's conception would fall in that realm of um, private, sensitive topics. <laughs> and, um, and it is can, a bit of the double whammy, isn't it? Got to oh, talk yeah, about absolutely. sex and donor conception. I mean, all wrapped into one. Ugh. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It becomes a very difficult topic. And we can take um, information um, research from um, communication studies um, that has looked at um, you know just these things: um, a, a person's confidence in being able to address a, a topic. Um, um, effectively, their um, general communication skills, as well as their privacy preferences, and find out that um, that actually those those characteristics will have an effect on um, how um, you know on the outcomes of a disclosure. So that if a person doesn't feel very comfortable, if they don't have really good co- um, communication skills, or if they really would rather keep this this topic private. Mm, maybe disclosure isn't going to have such a good outcome as it would be if you were quite confident, have good good communication skills, and hey, this is no big deal. I can talk about it any time. So that so that what we can take from that, um, even though there hasn't been a lot of study, um, like we're just beginning to study this um, this area um, in our research, um, but we can, we can take from that to to say, hmm, those resources you have on your um, website can be very very helpful um, to those families who, or those parents who who really um, um, you know need to have that that guidance and the support. And and there's no, I mean that's a good thing. Go get the guidance and support that that will mm-hmm. help you to feel confident in um, being able to talk with your children. And we also see that parents who join support groups where there are other parents who have also conceived uh, through donor conception seem to gain more confidence by knowing other parents who, who you know, that this is a normal way to grow families now and and we can handle it in a, in a normal and above-board way. Uh, so joining support groups, I think, uh, online or in person, uh, in person is sometimes harder. There are fewer of them. Right. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, and actually, the the um, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that those uh, you know support groups and um, you know talking with other people um, can be really a, a big help. And I can't see why it wouldn't be. Just not a lot of research that support that yeah. you know would be supportive of that. But yeah, that Dr. Goldbach, one question I have is is one of the concerns we hear from parents who fear telling their children is because they don't want the child to be confused about who the real parent is, and they don't want to, as, as Dr. Ruder just mentioned, undermine the relationship with the uh, the parent of the sex, the father if it's a sperm donation, a mother if it's an egg donation. And I'm curious about your, your study that you've done with the uh, donor sibling registry. I don't know if you asked this question, but how do kids and adolescents and young adults view their donor uh and and view the uh and is it a confusing thing to all of a sudden believe that you have an extra parent out there yeah no i think that's an interesting question and one that we were interested in as well 
what we found is that the young people were very keen to find out about their donor. Many actually wanted to make contact and even to meet their donor, but very few actually saw their donor as a father. So the reason they wanted to search for him was out of curiosity. They wanted to find out what he was like as a person, perhaps about his family background and history. So really, um, I mean, earlier Martha was talking about the importance of identity formation for adolescents. Um, and it's very much to do with that. So they want to find out all about him to create a better sense of where they've come from um, in a sense, biologically, but they don't see the donor as their father. What did you What did you see from the parents? Because you also interviewed parents, I believe, uh, that were also uh, connected with the donor sibling registry. How did they feel and their anxiety level uh, as far as their children wanting to know either more information or to contact their donor? Well, of course, there were a vast group of parents in that they had joined the donor sibling registry, so they were parents who actually wanted to find out about donor relations. So, um, you know, they weren't so concerned. But interestingly, their reasons for searching were very much the same as the children. So it was really mainly curiosity to find out more to help their child build up a fuller picture of, you know, where they come from, who they are, and so on. So the the reasons were very much in parallel. But they were a self-selected group is a valid point because they were they were comfortable enough to yeah, join. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Ruder, what are you saying in this area? Um, well, I, I just wanted to add that, that, you know, from adoption research, we know that, um, you know, searching for your um, your birth parents um, it's it's now become considered normative um, for children to do that. That that it's you know kind of an expected thing, and and that um, there's no negative effects um, from doing so. And and learning more about your um, about your birth parents um, can help some sh- children um, significantly with identity development. Um, we don't have any research on that um, in uh, among uh, donor conceived children, but um, but one can certainly um, theorize that. Yeah, just in the same with a lot of other parallels between adoption and donor-conceived children, that this, you know, it, it probably is a normative thing to, to want to find out more about where you came from or, you know, your biological connections. It's interesting. We hear from adult adoptees, uh, because we have a large number of them that are part of our community, that those who are not interested in searching, it has become so normative, as you say, that for those who are not interested, there is a perception that what's wrong with you, because you're not interested in doing it, and they're like, well, it's just not that curious. And interestingly enough, um, it, of course, this is not. This is just a very, very small sampling of, I think, four or five we had on the uh, on the um, on our panel of uh, donor-conceived adults. But uh, one of them was had no interest at all. Um, was simply in finding out that she was conceived, and it was a sibling. Uh, uh, her sister was also on the panel. Her sister had intense interest and felt very betrayed having not been told. Also, also, she had a very poor relationship with her, uh, the father that raised her, so in some way there was some relief. But her sister that she was raised with, who was also donor-conceived by a different donor, had zero interest and, and did not feel betrayed and just, it just really wasn't, you know, just wasn't important. So I think there's, 
uh, one of the things we have to take into account is that all donor-conceived people are not the same by temperament or personality or or, or anything. So it's, um, it becomes so normative that it can put pressure on. Um, before we leave, we, I have not raised the issue specific to surrogacy. Uh, and uh, so I did want to talk a little about that as well. Do you see... Uh, and with surrogacy, we have to divide it between traditional surrogacy and gestational surrogacy. And, and in fact, although traditional surrogacy is still happening, it is by far um, a much smaller percentage now. Uh, Dr. Goldenbach, have you, I am blanking now on whether I think you did do some research. Uh, and one of the concerns with surrogacy, particular traditional surrogacy, is how children uh, and will feel as adults. Uh, when they found out that the woman who gave birth to them and whose egg was used to, through their conception um, uh, was paid for doing that, and, and there's concern that, that uh, children conceived that way would feel uh, differently in, than, uh, than other uh, donor-conceived children. Yes, well, as part of the Millennium Study that I mentioned earlier, we've also been following up a group of children born through surrogacy. I should say that this was carried out in the United Kingdom where um, it's gestational surrogacy is probably accounts for about a, um, a third of surrogacies. And oh. actually, um, what you call traditional surrogacy happens quite a lot. So I know it's very different in the U.S., and I think this is largely for legal reasons. Um, so what we have done is we studied the families when the children were 1, 2, 3, 7, 10, and we're now seeing them as they are in mid-adolescence at age 14. And at this point, we can actually speak to them, interview them about how they feel about you know, being born through surrogacy um, and how they feel about their surrogate mother. Many of them still see their surrogate mother. And actually... Um, the very large majority are perfectly fine about it. Again, they were told when they were, all of them knew um, about their origins from a very early age. And many of them grew up in contact with the surrogate mother, and many of them are still in contact with the surrogate mother. And so far, um, you know, we're, we're still halfway through our 14-year-old follow-up, but the results are really very positive. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and they were all told at a, I'm going to guess that the majority, and I may be wrong, but were the majority of these uh, with uh, same-sex fathers? Uh, couples? No, uh, no, no, no. These were all, these were all, we're doing another study of same-sex fathers, which I can mention in a minute. These were all heterosexual couples who'd had to... Oh, gotcha. Okay, these were all heterosexual. Interesting. And they were all told. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's more difficult hide surrogacy then because there's no pregnancy. So Right. You know, That's a very good point. And no pregnancy right, pictures yeah. and and then and so many people know, uh, because you didn't go through a pregnancy that it's gotta be a really concerted uh, effort to, to keep that. So even through the age of fourteen, the children were all told and all told at a very young age, uh and have yeah. contact and for the most part from what you're saying, the majority of say that again? Sorry, some have contact. They don't all have contact with the surrogate. And have you compared these kids psychologically and in, in, in the emotional development and emotional uh, um, uh, stability uh, measures? Are they 
uh, not just do they say they are feeling okay, are they also measuring uh, compared to other kids uh, within the norm? Well, we will do this, but at the moment we're halfway through this 14-year-old follow-up, so we haven't done it yet. But we did um, look at their adjustments at, well, all through, and what we did find, um, and I'd like to mention this because it's a slightly controversial finding, that at age seven, the children did show a slight increase in emotional and behavioral problems compared with the naturally conceived children. But this had declined by age 10, so they had gone back to the same levels of functioning as everybody else. And I think what's really interesting about this is that you see the same with adopted children. Um, So in a large study in the Netherlands of internationally adopted children, these children, by a completely different research group, also showed a slight increase of problems at age 17 which had declined by the time they were followed up again in early adolescence. And it seems a one possible explanation, and certainly the one that the Dutch researchers um, you know, feel is, is the right one, is that these children, because they're different, and the, in the adopted children they were all from abroad, so they look different often from their parents, they have to deal with identity issues earlier than other adolescents which might explain that slight increase in problems at an earlier age. And I think you may have misspoke. I think you said at age 17, but I think, didn't you mean at age 7? 7, yeah. Yeah. I meant age 7, sorry. And I also, if I could just say, I mean, these differences were still very much within normal levels of functioning, so they weren't, you know, at dysfunctional clinical levels, but it was just a slight blip around age 7. Interesting. And that, that makes that makes good sense. Although you would see where the adopted children would have the, because they were internationally adopted, they look different. Therefore, it's out there, uh, and they have to deal with it. But I, I'm curious. That's hmm, because many of the children conceived through a, uh, born through a traditional surrogate, what as you say, what we call here, a traditional surrogacy would not necessarily their their appearances would not look different. Boy, this has just been no, fascinating. Where they did have a relationship with their surrogate, which made them a bit different. Well, that's that's a, yeah, I I can see that. Yeah, that's true. We have come to the end of our time. I am sorry to say, this has been absolutely fascinating for me, and I think I know it will be for our audience as well. Thank you, Dr. Susan Golenbach and Dr. Martha Ruder, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Uh, we will be, uh, I will be blogging on um, some of what we were talking about today, and uh, I would love to, to have your thoughts and, and have you be a part of it. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy.
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.